Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The book of Ecclesiastes, which is uh, just to the right of the Proverbs. If you can find the Psalms, kind of easy to find in the middle of the Bible, go to the Proverbs and then turn one more to Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath a chair in front of you. You can grab a paperback Bible and turn to page 318. Uh, There's a guy named Julian Barnes. He's a British writer, and he um, said this in one of his writings. I think it's a very interesting statement. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It it seems that that statement captures a a common experience among a lot of people in our kind of highly secular world uh, where people like to affirm their their atheism or their agnosticism, their disbelief in God, but at the same time, they they want to acknowledge in their full honesty that, that there's something missing when we dismiss God from our consciousness. And particularly here in Western culture where belief in God used to be rather prevalent and now less so, what Julian Barnes is saying here is that by losing God, by dismissing God, by acting like God doesn't exist, we have lost something, something profoundly important. And many people today, the way some writers describe it, are haunted by transcendence that they don't like to think about the existence of God because in some cases maybe they want to appear intellectually respectable, claim to be atheists, but haunted by transcendence, this nagging doubt that maybe their doubts should be doubted. (laughs) And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The book of Ecclesiastes is addressing this issue of the existence of God and how do we make sense of life if God doesn't exist? And if God does exist, how does that change things? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is so unbelievably relevant for us as Christians and just well, people in general in the year 2019. It's actually kind of a strange book. I don't know how many of you have read it, but it is unlike any other book in the Bible. It is kind of cynical. It's uh, a little bit depressing, quite frankly. It's definitely not the feel-good book of the Bible. It is brutally honest about life in a fallen world and the difficulties that come along with that, and particularly honest about life apart from God. And there's one writer that says when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it leads us to a crossroads where one road will lead us to faith in God and the other road will lead us to a bullet through the head. I mean, that's how brutally honest this book is. It's just bringing things out in stark reality and helping us face the difficult, challenging questions of life. The book of Ecclesiastes. So we're in a sermon series, Route 66. What I'm doing is going through the entire Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, moving all the way through the book of Revelation, and here we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So just some background information about Ecclesiastes. Um, Author of Ecclesiastes, many scholars think it was Solomon. Not everybody agrees with that. There's some debate 
Um, it seems to fit with other writings we have of Solomon, like in the Proverbs, which we looked at last week. If it was written by Solomon, then the book was probably written in the 900s BC, because that's when Solomon lived. Uh, if he didn't write it, it might have been written a few centuries later. Again, some debate among scholars about that. Theme of Ecclesiastes, well, wisdom. Remember, we're in the wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. This is giving us wisdom for life, but more specifically, it's the search for meaning and dealing with the big questions that humanity has asked for the history of human civilization. Significant events, I'm saying none, again, just because it's not a book describing historical events, it's Solomon or the writer here reflecting on the meaning of life. Richard Dawkins, very famous atheist today, says famously that the universe seems to have no design and no purpose, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's his view of the world. The universe is not designed. There's no purpose to our lives. Everything is indifferent. Is that the world in which we live, really? Is that it? That's what Ecclesiastes is addressing. So, we're going to read two passages here. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read the very beginning of the book and the very end of the book. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And then chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those who come after. Flip to chapter 12, we'll read verses 9 through 14, the very ending of the book. Chapter 12, 9 through 14. <clears throat> Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs and, uh, with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God in heaven, please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Meaninglessness. Vanity. Is that all there is to this life? I'm just going to give you two points here this morning. The first is this, and this is the stark reality. Without God, your life is depressingly meaningless. That's what the writer tells us. So let's look. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. You see these words in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word in some other translations is translated meaningless. Meaninglessness, all is meaningless. The word actually, the Hebrew word actually means like a vapor or a breath. It's kind of the essence of the word. It's like in the winter time when you exhale and you can see your breath and you see that kind of steamy breath and then what happens? It just kind of vanishes into the wind. And if you were to try to grab your breath and kind of put it in your hand, of course there would be nothing there. There's no substance to it. And that's the idea that the writer is giving us here, that this is, this is life. It's just something that appears for a second, kind of like a phantom, and vanishes away, and it's gone forever. And therefore, everything is meaningless. He goes on to verse 3 to give a little more clarity about what he has in mind here. He says, what does man gain then by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This becomes a very important phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, it appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, a pretty short book. But here's what the writer means. When he's talking about under the sun, he means life on earth apart from God. Life under the sun, on the earth, and in particular, life without regard to anybody or anything above the sun. Life without reference to a transcendent divine being, life simply under the sun on the earth, the writer is saying, is meaningless. And so he goes on through the rest of these verses just giving us some examples and kind of just making his case. And so he gives, first of all, some examples from the natural world in verses 4 through 7. Just making his case here about the meaninglessness of life. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So what he's saying is, you know, you you look and you see that um, young people get old and old people that you see, you know that they were once young and we have these new generations springing up and it won't be very long before, before they're old. I mean, it's always interesting to see the number of, you know, rock stars from the 50s and 60s who are now in their 70s and 80s. You know, they were once the, the, the symbol of youth and rebellion, and, and now they're in their later years. And the writer is saying, just notice, generations of people, they spring up young, but they get old, and they disappear, and they die, but after they pass on, the earth remains forever. I mean, the earth, which seems perhaps less significant than human beings, the earth continues on, but generations die out. And the writer is saying, that just seems absurd. It's meaningless. Verse 5, he goes on to talk about the sun rises and it goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Now, 
you know, we know through science that the sun is the center of the universe. Planets revolve around the sun. The writer here is just describing the way the sun appears. It appears to rise. There's no error here. The writer is just using what's called phenomenological language, just describing the way the sun appears. And so he says the run seems to, or the sun seems to, to rise, and then it sets, and then you wake up the next morning, and, and it does it again. And then the next morning, it does it again, and it goes over and over again. The word for hastens here is, it means to hurry. It means to pant with exhaustion. Like the writer's seen the sun just wearing itself out, rising and setting and rising and setting over and over and over again, and there's no end to it. And he just says, this looks like absurdity. This is meaningless. What is, what is the sun doing? Verse 6, he describes the wind that blows to the south and around to the north, around and around it goes, and on its circuits the wind returns. I mean, have you ever tried to chase a piece of paper that's blowing in the wind? It's hard to do, right? You don't. No, where the wind is going to blow, it's unpredictable. I mean, we can see jet streams on weather forecasts now, and we can kind of see where they're going, but you know how hard it is to predict the weather. The wind blows wherever it wishes. It's unpredictable. It's hard to track. It seems meaningless. It seems like there's no pattern to it. Verse 7, he talks about the streams, water that runs into the sea. But the sea's not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So he's pointing out these rivers and tributaries and creeks flowing into large bodies of water. Water continually flowing into larger bodies of water, but the larger bodies of water never seem to get any fuller. It's kind of like pouring water into a bathtub with a leaky plug or pouring water into a bucket with a hole in it, and the water leaks out, and then someone pours more water in it, and it leaks out, and then they pour more water in it, and it leaks out, and they pour more water, and it goes on and on and on. And he's looking at all the streams and saying, this, this seems to be what's going on in the world. It's absurd. Round and round and round it goes. Meaningless. But then he shifts and talks about his own personal experience to further make this case about meaninglessness. In verse 8, he talks about the lack of satisfaction that we tend to find in our lives. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Our hearts can never seem to be content. They can never seem to be satisfied. We, we get a new car and we're happy about that car for a little while, but then we notice the new car means you've got higher insurance payments. And you, get, you have a small house, you're frustrated with that, you get a large house, and well now there's more work to do to keep it clean. And you get a pay raise and you're happy about the pay raise, but now that you get a pay raise, now you have more taxes to pay. And before long you find out you need another pay raise. And the result is that it is simply weariness. It just wears you out, just trying to keep up with the desire of your heart. Your heart's like a black hole. You keep pouring things in, and the black hole just swallows it up, and it's not satisfied. Verses 9 and 10. He talks about there's really nothing new in the world. What has been is what will be, verse 9. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? No, it's a rhetorical question. No, that's the answer. It's been already in the ages before us. 
Just humanity, civilization, just been doing the same things over and over again. We see this often in, in music. Um, you just see musicians and bands come along and basically most of them, almost all of them, are just borrowing styles from decades and years prior. There's that song, um, I'll Always Love You. Is that the song by Whitney Houston from years ago back in the... 80s, I just found out recently that that song was originally done by Dolly Parton. I mean, I, I generally know those kinds of things, but I, I, that got past me somehow. I didn't know that. that. So there's Whitney Houston doing an older song by Dolly Parton. This happens over and over again. Bands regurgitating previous styles. Movies, it happens all the time too, right? I mean, you've got um, remakes of old movies and sometimes remakes of remakes. Some movies, there's three or so different versions of it. I saw a preview the other day for a remake of the movie Shaft, which I don't think was that good to begin with, and yet they're going to remake it. Anyway, movie from the 70s, um, movies remade over and over again. The writer is just saying, it just seems like ideas are just recycled over and over again. Verse 11, he talks about um, the lack of remembrance. He says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What he's saying is that people rise up and they're famous for a little while and everybody knows them. They're a household word and you let a few decades go by and no one's heard of them. I mean, think of movie stars that were famous in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. I mean, there are some in here who will remember those. And the younger among you will not know any of these people, and yet they were household names. They were the most famous people in the world, the richest, most envied people. And then they just disappear. And we're talking just 100 years ago, much less the people who were famous 500 years ago or 800 years ago or 1,200 years ago. These people are vanished and gone. And what the writer is saying is that there's going to be famous people in this age and famous people yet to come, but after them, they're going to be forgotten too. It's meaningless. Why try to be famous? Why try to be rich? Why try to do anything? Because it's all going to end in absurdity. Friends, this, this is your life. You know, you grow up. You maybe go to school. Try to get a good job. You find a job. You work that job for a while. Maybe you get married. Meet the right person. Get married. You have kids. Maybe. Grow older. Grow in your job, make some money, put it away, retire, got a few years in retirement, and then you're dead. And it's over. And you'll be forgotten. No one will talk about you. No one's going to remember you. I mean, yeah, in the next five or ten years, fifteen years, I don't know, maybe fifty years if you're a really unique kind of person. Five hundred years from now, Nobody remembers you. That's what the writer is saying here. And if that's, if that's the case, what are we doing? Life is meaningless. Life is absurd. That's the conclusion that, that he's drawing here at this stage in the book. The purpose of this book, friends, is not, at least at the outset here, to give you answers. The purpose of the book is to force you to ask the right questions. This book, in this chapter in particular, it wants to rattle your cage and wake you up and say, what, what are you living for? 
What are the questions that you're asking about your life? Maybe you're asking, yeah, where do I want to go on vacation this year? Where would I like to live one day? What kind of job would I like to do? I mean, these are, these are important questions. These are good questions. But are these the best questions? Are you asking questions like, does my life have meaning? What is the significance of my choices? Is there a God? Can I know him? Is he pleased with me? What happens after I die? Will I be forgotten? If I am going to be forgotten, why am I continuing to live? What is the purpose of this life? Those are good questions to ask. They're not easy questions to ask. They can be kind of depressing questions to ask in some cases, but they're the right questions to ask. And that's what Ecclesiastes wants. That's what God wants. It wants you to face reality. This is a challenge, maybe more so in this day and age than any other time before. Because in this day and age, here's what you can do. When you have an uncomfortable question that comes to your mind, like the ones I've just asked, you know what you can do? You can pull out your cell phone. You can dial up a YouTube video and entertain yourself until you fall asleep. And then you can wake up the next morning and get to work and do whatever you do, and you don't have to deal with those nagging questions anymore. You can entertain yourself to death. Amuse yourselves to death, as Neil Postman wrote many years ago. We live in this profound age of distraction. It's so easy to divert our attention from real questions to trivial nonsense. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with looking at a YouTube video. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the opportunities to distract ourselves are great. And for us as Christians, this, I think, has profound implications for how we do evangelism. What we need to be doing as Christians is trying to help people to ask the right questions. We might not have to get to the point of saying, hey, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That hopefully will come later. But to begin with, you've got to force people to ask, to think beyond their earthly life. A guy named Alan Noble says it like this, the challenge for Christians in our time is to speak of the gospel in a way that unsettles listeners, that conveys the transcendence of God, that provokes contemplation and reflection, and that reveals the stark givenness of reality. What we want is God to use us to rattle people's cages to get them to think about these kinds of questions that Ecclesiastes is forcing us to ask. So this is pretty depressing so far, but there is a second point here, and it's this. With God, friends, the good news is, is that your life can be abundantly meaningful. And this is what the writer takes up in these last few verses, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So you can turn there now. This is uh, kind of an epilogue, kind of a conclusion to the book, and um, it answers this question. What does make life meaningful, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes? And there's three things in these verses that I'm going to pull out for you. Three things that make life meaningful. And the first thing is simply this. There is a God. Yes, there is a God. God does exist. Verse 13, the writer says, the end of the matter... All has been heard. In other words, here's the conclusion to all of these things that I've been writing. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. That's it. That's the meaning of life, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. People act like the meaning of life is hard to understand. It's easy. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the meaning of life. That's why you exist. 
fear God? Does that mean to cower because you think God's a bad God who's going to whip you when you're wrong? No, fear God in the sense of acknowledging his transcendence, his greatness, his holiness, his wisdom, that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's the one that has created all things. He commands the morning. He sends the lightning to its place, and he created you. You are a creature of an eternal God, and you belong to him. You are accountable to him. You are here to serve him, to know him, to worship him, to glorify him. That's why you exist. That's why you're here. You don't have to act like the meaning of life is hard to figure out. It's easy. (laughs) Our catechism says it this way. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not just slavish obedience to commands. It's enjoying the one who created you and with whom you are made to have relationship. That's the first step to finding meaning in life, acknowledging God's existence. But the second thing is this. There is a written authority. There's a written authority. Um, You know, the fact that there's a God is one thing, and you might receive that and say, okay, that's good, but here's a very important second part of that question, which is, can you know that God? Can you know who he is and what he wants of you? What can you know about that God? And the good news about the God of the Bible is that he's a talking God, a speaking God, a God who communicates. And that's what we see here in, in these verses. So follow me here in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Words of truth that were written down, is what verse 10 is saying. And then verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and nails. I'll talk about that in a second. They are given by one shepherd. Who is the shepherd? Well, the shepherd is God. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Words of truth written down, given by God. And then he goes on, verse 12, and says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. In other words, the words that are given from God and written down are enough. And we have no business adding to them or adjusting them. And what does that sound like? Words from God that are true and are written down that we're not supposed to adjust. <laughs> it's the scriptures, friends. It's, it's the Bible. Now, the Bible wasn't fully compiled at this time. But what the writer is saying here is that God has spoken and he has provided a written authority that we can consult so that we can make sense of our lives. He goes on in verse 11 here talking about goads and nails. Goads are like these sharp sticks that farmers would put around their animals to steer them in one direction or another by pointing in their sides. That's what a goad is. And the nails here are probably like tent pegs that are pounded into the ground to keep a tent in place, to keep it from blowing away. So you get a vivid picture there about the role that the Word of God plays in our lives. It directs us and how we should go and keeps us from being blown around by every wind of doctrine. That's what the Bible is for. That's what it does. That's how God intended it. And that's huge for meaning in life. We're not left in the dark here, friends, walking through life, figuring out what's right or wrong. God has given us his word. The last thing is there will be a judgment. That brings meaning to life. There is a judgment day. Verse 14, last verse in the book, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. 
Judgment day is coming. If there is no judgment, there is no God, there's no final day where we have to face our maker, friends, if that's the case, then life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're in school, and the teacher says, I'm going to give you two assignments. First assignment is, I want you to complete this, hand it in by the end of the week, it'll be worth half your grade. And then he says, but there's a second assignment, it won't be graded, and you don't have to hand it in. And now you have the week to work on those assignments. Now, which assignment are you going to work on? Which assignment gets your attention? Which assignment is meaningful? Which assignment matters? The one that's going to be judged. And our lives are the same way. If there is no judgment, it's open season. I mean, we can do whatever we want because we're not accountable for anything. But what the writer here is saying is there will be a judgment day. There will be a judgment day. Which means not that nothing matters, but everything matters. That, that ends up being the kind of purpose of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters. I mean everything. I mean down to the smallest thing. Look what he says. Every secret thing. He says every deed Every secret thing, whether they're good or whether they're evil, everything matters in your life. There's nothing meaningless. There's nothing insignificant. Your words matter. The way you behave matters. The attitudes you choose to adopt, they all, they all matter. The, the, the time that you sat there listening to that lonely person that nobody else would talk to, and, and you sat there and you listened, and nobody noticed, nobody saw that, but that mattered. That was important. The, the diapers that mothers change day after day, year after year, no one's watching, the child doesn't give you a thank you, but it matters. Those deeds matter. The time you held your tongue when you were talking to somebody and you knew there was something that you could say that would really undercut somebody's reputation. Nobody knows that that thought occurred to you and you didn't say it. And it might seem to you like that was insignificant because nobody knew even what I was going to say. They didn't even know the temptation that I experienced. They didn't know what I chose not to say. And it seems meaningless. But it's not meaningless. That matters. That mattered. That was important. God saw that. God knew. That matters. The prayers that you utter in your secret room with the door closed, your faithfulness to your spouse over years and years and years through some hard times, difficult times where hearts have grown cold and distance has set in, yet you've been faithful. The Bible verses you've read to your children at night, the fact that you're all here right now in this room, Worshiping God, listening to a sermon, it matters. Everything matters. Nothing is lost. Everything counts. Now, some of you I know at this point might be saying, well, I know you're saying this to be encouraging, but I'm not so sure I'm that encouraged because the idea of facing judgment is not my idea of a good time. Standing before God, judged for every secret thing, every, every deed, really, well, the scriptures not only give us meaning in life, but friends, the good news is that the scripture also gives us hope. Not just meaning, but hope. And if you were to face the final judgment on your own, yes, that would be bad 
news. But the gospel brings us good news. Because the gospel says this, that there is one beyond the sun, one who created the sun, actually, one who holds the sun in its orbit day after day after day. That's the one who left the throne room and came into this world under the sun. He came under the sun here in the person of Jesus and walked on this earth. The creator of the sun came here to rescue you. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe came into this earth. He walked on this earth. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He went to a cross. He died on the cross. And when he shed his blood there, he was taking upon himself the judgment that you deserve. He stood in your place. He took the anger of God at you. He took it on himself so that you can be the recipient of the loving favor of God, his acceptance, his love, his mercy, his pardon. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what gives life meaning, ultimately. It's not just knowing God as this kind of vague deity up in the sky somewhere. It's knowing God through Jesus. Knowing the true God through the true God-man. Putting faith in him so that when you look at that crossroads, one road leads to God and the other leads to a bullet through the head, you can think to yourself, I have a Savior who took the bullet for me. I got a Savior who died in my place and has risen from the dead. And he offers to you to live a life that is meaningful and in great abundance. Life is yours abundantly in Jesus. It's good to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its honesty. We thank you that it gives us the truth. Um, The truth is hard in some cases, but the truth gives us hope. That is that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus, and we worship him today. In his name we pray. Amen.